Hello and welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes for the week ending July 17th, 2020. Quite a busy week. This is videocast 39 and podcast episode 29. So as we always like to start with, a little bit of the media because I cover my best ideas there and then we'll work into the data and the articles moving ahead. So thanks for joining us and want to start out on Monday. I was on Fox Business with uh, with Liz Clayman for the Clayman Countdown. Thanks to Liz Clayman and Ellie Terrett for having me on the show. And that was a, a great episode segment because they asked me to talk about, they, were, they put out a bunch of stocks that were trading at 100 times multiples. And I basically came on and said that um, the they were pointing out tech in semiconductor stocks that were trading at 100 times multiples. I said, listen, uh, you know, semiconductors are priced for perfection. Banks are priced for the apocalypse, neither of which will probably happen. <laughs> so it just showed the extreme divergence between value and growth. And we've seen the push pull the last couple of months. And I talked a little bit about when value outperforms versus when tech outperforms tech and growth versus value and cyclicals. And the key thing is, is when the recovery looks like it's going fast, like it was in May, value and cyclicals outperform. And you saw they had a monster run in May. Then the cases spiked up in the su- in the Sun Belt towards the uh, mid-June to early July. And that implied that there were going to be some areas that had to reshut down certain parts of their business, which means the recovery was going to be slower. And guess what? Money rotated right back into tech. Yields came down. And when growth appears like it's going to be slower or the recovery appears like it's going to be slower, people are willing to pay up whatever they have to for the small pockets of growth that can do well if there's a slower economic recovery. Uh, So that was a really um, good segment that we went through. And the other thing that I laid out to, to Liz, which she agreed with, was that historically if you look back at the data paying up a hundred times for earnings for any stock with very few exceptions usually doesn't end well one to two two years later there's no question they can go higher in the short term but uh, that has historically underperformed over time so uh, that was a great little segment grateful to Liz Clayman and Ellie Terrett for having me on that also on Monday morning Meta Singh and Devik Jain uh, called me for a quote in their Reuters article. Thank you for including me, Meta and Devik. And the quotes that they chose from our conversation was, there are renewed expectations that the Pfizer, Pfizer vaccine will be ready for approval by the end of October, which is sooner than expected. So that's very good news. And then the second quote was, the market is sniffing out that the worst is behind us and is looking forward to earnings and guidance, which will more than likely beat very low expectations. So this was Monday before earnings started. We're going to go comprehensively into how companies did this week, but that proved to be correct. Um, then on Tuesday early morning, which was uh, the closing bell for CNBC in Indonesia, I was on, and that was with Maria Katerina. Uh, thank you for having me on your show. And Yolaiwan Haryana was uh, invited me on. So this one was a really interesting experience, CNBC closing bell. 
because most segments, you know, on, on Fox, it's the, the floor show, it's quick, it's snappy, it's a couple of minutes. Most segments on other stations are like four to six minutes is, is the normal range. Uh, this one I got on and we started going back and forth. Uh, I got on, I guess, around 4.30 their time. And then like the first commercial break came in, you know, four to six minutes later. And Maria said, we'll be back with Tom Hayes, chairman of management. I was like, okay, maybe they want another minute. Long story short, we went through three commercial breaks. The, the whole entire basically half hour it was 20 minute, 21 minutes excluding commercials. Very uh, exciting. Very grateful for that. Um, and we covered quite a few things that I normally don't talk a lot about because the audience was emerging markets and Indonesia. So I, I do want to go into a few of those points. And with all of these segments, you can uh, go up to on hedgefundtips.com, click on the button that says featured on and it brings up the all of the appearances in order of importance. And the reason these are important is, is not because it's TV. It's because of the preparation that has to go in to get ready for the show. You know, I go through a lot of my data and I synthesized everything I'm thinking about, uh, you know, uh, pages of, of data that I look at on a daily basis into, you know, four to six minutes. So it really is kind of like having a cliff's notes of what's happening now to review some of these segments um, because, you know, it helps my thinking and investing and, and I hope it can be helpful for you as well. But in, in this segment, um, we went into quite a few things that, that I didn't expect to. First and foremost was because of the region, they wanted to know what I thought about US-China relations. Uh, and my basic theme there was, yes, you have the uh, issues over the South China Sea, you have the issues over the public company listings, you have the uh, frustration over COVID, you have all of the, 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 the Hong Kong issues. All of those are legitimate, but Right now, the relationship boils down to one thing and one thing only, and that is, are the Chinese, are both sides following through on the phase one commitments in the case of China? It's the purchases uh, from the from the United States, the ag purchases, the energy, the commodity purchases, etc. And they are. And what was interesting about that, and I also talked about it on China Global, which we'll talk about in just a minute. But towards the end of the week, China came out after some back and forth over, over major issues and sanctions, uh, uh, bilateral sanctions on both sides, and basically said, We're, we are sticking with phase one. Uh, we'll deal with what, what they labeled was bullying. We'll deal with that separately, but we're holding pat with phase one. So, so long as both sides stand pat on phase one and keep that moving forward, all of the other rhetoric like they had with the flight, the U.S. flights got resolved uh, a couple weeks ago. These type of things, I think, can be worked through over time. It's it's so long as that trade deal stays in place, um, that the relations will be fine. The, the next issue that we covered uh, was the U.S. stock market overview and current outlook which uh, which we went through effectively. I talked about stimulus. I talked about, you know, towards the end of the year, you know, V-shaped recovery is equivalent to vaccines. And we had at that point had good news on Moderna, good news on Pfizer, uh, et cetera. So looking toward, uh, we already have all-time highs in the NASDAQ, looking for to go positive on the S&P 500. Uh, for the year and then uh, push towards new highs, maybe the back half of the year. 
uh, and the same thing with the Dow Jones. Uh, the other issue that was on everyone's mind is COVID spikes, declines, implications, and resolutions. So at that point, I went through state by state for the Sunbelt states that were spiking and showed how many of those states at that point were coming off of the boil, meaning they were coming down off their most recent high that happened in early July. But we're actually going to get a bit more granular on that in this week's uh, podcast video cast because, you know, I have I usually have three or four TVs on in the background during the day. And, you know, it's a constant drumbeat about, you know, cases spiking through the roof. It's going bananas. I'm like, what the hell is going on? Like, why is it that in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, we're basically we're down to like nothing. Um, and in these other areas, it's it's going bananas. And I literally found the answer today. Uh, and I think it's going to be obvious to many of you, and it's more than just uh, we wear masks now and all of that, but actually there's there's a lot to it um, that has changed, which may be very, very good news, but I'm going to hold you into suspense till the latter part of the call because it it's obvious, but it's not talked about at all, and I think it's going to be helpful in, in getting to a quick resolution moving forward. Um, we talked about the value versus growth. The unique thing that I talked about on the call with her, on the segment with her, was emerging markets. And, and basically what I was talking about was, you know, the Indonesian demographics are very favorable. They have a very young population. They have population growth. And that bodes well for economic growth. If you look through the last 200 years, you could basically see the growth cycles like in the U.S. with the baby boomers when the baby boomers were young. Uh, you had the bull markets and then the World War II. So you had the 50s through the, you know, post-World War II, the baby boom till 68. And then when they started their own housing formation from 82 to 2000, those were the two biggest bull markets, uh, post-war bull markets. Uh, and that was attributable to that kind of pig in the python type of uh, concentration of large population and we have it again so the boomers were 85 million I'm sorry 80 million people now we've got it with the Millennials 85 million and everyone's looking at housing starts and demand is going through the roof and everyone's like oh it's because of COVID everyone's getting out of the city yes and it was starting before COVID this trend of housing starts and housing formation was really accelerating in the last like nine months and COVID just pushed it over the edge. We're in Connecticut. I mean, you know, things are, you're seeing bidding wars and, and Connecticut has been in a depression, housing depression and economic depression. It was one of the few states that didn't grow uh, basically since uh, 2007 on the housing side. So for 13 years, we're still underwater. Um, the state is as a whole. So, um, so basically, most of the emerging markets have those favorable demographics, and um, and things are very positive. The difference is what I told her was that if you look at the emerging market indices, you can effectively buy them for the exact same price that they were trading at 13 years ago, in 2007. The difference is, if you look at the math, the GDP of the combined region has dramatically grown over those 13 years, despite being able to buy it at the same price. So you can basically get, you know, the most bang for your buck. And usually during those huge periods of consolidation where the underlying fundamentals get much better, 
and the price stays the same. The reversion is abrupt and it's massive. And uh, she was really happy to hear that. And, you know, going on to the segment, I, I looked at Indonesia. Indonesia's charted alongside the emerging markets. It's basically done nothing for 10 years, the, the equity indices. And I think they're going to take off. And the other aspect that was intertwined into that was a general thesis that I have around uh, it's it's intertwined into value versus growth, a move into value, but it's also intertwined into the commodity cycle. So um, looking at a parallel to the early 2000s when energy and commodities were um, at you know multi-decade lows as a basket, we're at the same position now and things are setting up coming out of COVID as demand returns, as favorable, favorable demographics in the emerging markets and in the United States in particular, as far as the developed markets go, our millennial demographics are very favorable for commodity demand. Um, China coming out of COVID, um, India demographics, Indonesia, India and Indonesia probably have the best demographics for the next 20 years in terms of economic growth globally. Um, so she was really happy to hear that because I think for the country, you know, it's a stock market show and their stock market's basically done nothing for 10 years. That That's probably going to change very rapidly in the next five years. And they're going to be part of something like what was seen in the early 2000s emerging markets boom uh, and commodities boom, which are intertwined. Uh, but it will be more led by India, the Indias, Indonesias, Vietnams of the world than what was in uh, 2000 to 2007, largely driven by China and Brazil, etc. So um, she also asked about, uh, and the other thing that that was tied to as well was the short-term trend that has started of a, a slight dollar weakening. Any continued weakening in the U.S. dollar, which is uh, starting to move closer and closer to consensus, and we talked about maybe two months ago on one of these podcasts how um, the Bank of America survey had uh, managers believing that the dollar was the most, the highest percentage of managers believing the dollar was overvalued. I think since it was, it was like since 2003, and during that period, the dollar fell, and emerging markets and commodities boomed, and they're at the same level. They were at the same level a couple of months ago uh, when the dollar was at its strongest, and now it's starting to weaken. So all these things play into the benefit of emerging markets over the next three to five years, commodities over the next three to five years, believe it or not, inflation over the next three to five years, and she asked about gold and I said, you know, that would certainly be part of the basket. Um, I'd prefer to rather own the full basket um, than, um, than, than just metals. And more than that, I like durable businesses that throw off cash, uh, durable franchises, because the largest best franchises that pay a dividend will raise the dividend, number one. Number two, they will have the pricing power to benefit from inflation. So, you know, I joked, I'm an equities guy. So, you know, <laughs> to to a guy with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Uh, but for me, um, highest quality equities is probably a better inflation hedge over time than, uh, you know, just a, one commodity or um, uh, even a basket of commodities. Uh, next was um, thoughts on safety. She said, you know, cash or bonds. And I said, 
high quality equities that raise their dividend over time and are durable franchises. Because even if you had a, a contraction, you know, the biggest durable franchises gain share during contraction. So if you can withstand the volatility, i.e. never trade on margin, um, and just sit through the volatility of the best franchises, when you come out of it, a lot of their smaller competition will have gone out of business and, then they, and they do even better. So in some sense, you have greater safety um, uh, um, being in equities than you would think in bonds, particularly with bonds at historic low yields. You know, once the yields start to go up, uh, you're going to lose a lot of principal. Cash gets inflated. She asked about cash. Cash gets inflated away over time. So um, high quality, large equities are your best hedge, I think, both for safety uh, and for uh, inflation in the intermediate term. We, we talked about banks trading at a discount. Uh, for those of you who have listened in, you, you probably don't want to hear any more about banks, but we're going to talk about banks today because uh, we had earnings this week that came in better than expected uh, on the whole and, uh, and still great opportunities there. And, um, and we talked about value versus growth, you know, value outperforming when the recovery looks fast, growth outperforming in the short term when you look like you're having a short term setback. So that was uh, really a lot of fun. Uh, definitely want to, you know, thank them for having me on. Maria Katarina and Yolaiwan Haryana from CNBC Indonesia. Uh, next, we covered uh, on CGTN later Tuesday night with Mike Walter. Thanks to Mike Walter and Zaina Al Saib. For having me on and this was about the china recovery this was cgtn america and like one of the things that we covered in this was that globally um the theme is that not only in china but globally the data continued to come in better than expectations we referenced the global economic surprise index from citibank as well as the u.s economic surprise index uh, being at all-time record highs and we said that you know obviously imports exports pmi services pmi manufacturing had all beat at that point we covered that uh, retail sales x cinema and x large restaurants in china are at or near pre-COVID levels. So why is that good news for us? It's good news for us because, well, one, we sell a lot into China, but two, um, they are two months behind us. In other words, you know, they started their COVID journey basically to, you know, their cases peaked in February. Ours in the epicenter in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut peaked in April, mid-February mid, mid and mid-April. So to see them at pre-COVID levels shows us that, you know, we can follow the same path moving forward. Also, their airline seats um, scheduled are at 64 million domestic in July, which is only negative 5% year on year, which is amazing recovery, which goes to show in a couple of months, if we play our cards right, we can get there. Um, the other thing that I pointed out was that this was on Tuesday that, uh, uh people were looking for plus 2.5% GDP 
for uh, the China numbers were to come out on Thursday. And I said that it would likely come in better as all the global data had been coming in better. And sure enough, yesterday it came in at uh, plus 3.2% after being at negative 6.8% in Q1. So that was a positive thing. We talked about um, the recovery being tied, V-shaped recovery being tied to getting the vaccine. Uh, you've got, we had Moderna, good data on Moderna that night. Uh, we have good data from Pfizer the week before. So that's moving forward. And again, we reemphasized that um, all of the other disagreements, the treatment over Hong Kong, the South China Sea, the Huawei, uh, the auditing requirements for Chinese public companies, et cetera, are secondary. The key is do the terms of the phase one stay in place? And so long as they are, uh, then things will continue to, to go smoothly, and they have. And sure enough, uh, just two days later on Thursday, China came out and says, we will stick with the U.S. trade deal but respond to bullying. So, you know, um, what they're basically saying, you know, the rhetoric was high on both sides this week, but they're going to work work their way through. And um, the administration backed off some hardline uh, points of view and China backed off and they said we're going to continue with our purchases despite the hard rhetoric. So that was a very, very positive thing. And uh, things continue to uh, move ahead on that front. So that was CGTN. And then lastly was Wednesday, I uh, was invited on CNBC in London. This, uh, I guess they're, they're based in London. It's the whole of Europe. And this one, we talked largely about banks because it was the day after JP Morgan, Citi, and Wells Fargo reported. And we talked about the, well, we, you know, we talked about the value versus growth. We talked about the COVID cases coming down in certain Sunbelt regions at that point, uh, economic data beating expectations. But the most important thing we talked about was banks. And the case that I laid out, and you definitely want to go through this, was a concept called uh, Cecil. Cecil is a new accounting standard that went into place that effectively forced the banks to estimate their worst case scenario credit losses for the entire cycle and record them up front. This has never been happened before, and this has never happened before. It usually was on a quarter by quarter basis. You adjust based on how things are going. Here you have to say, if things go to hell, how much reserves do I need? And they took them 100% of those in this quarter, which is why you saw those three banks take you know over $25 billion of collective reserves, JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, Citibank. That's the bad news. The good news is that they kitchen synced it. So uh, the CEO, CFO, John Shrewsbury of Wells Fargo was on 3 p.m., uh, after they reported earnings uh, with uh, Wilford Frost and uh, Sarah Eisen on CNBC. And he basically said that we have, um, we've taken, we believe we've taken 100% of provisions that we're going to need for this cycle, you know, obviously with barring some crazy thing. So that is not how it's been historically. So effectively, all the bad news is out, and that's why you've seen, and we're going to walk into it, that's why you've seen a bounce in these stocks since they reported 
because there's there's all of the bad news, the concept of sell the rumor, everyone was expecting these huge provisions, and then buy the news. We got the bad news, it's out, there's no more sellers, the sellers were all selling in anticipation of the bad news, there's no one left to sell. Now they've said we basically given 100% of whatever bad news we could possibly guess will come in the next three or four quarters due to Cecil, uh, the accounting change, we had to take it all up front. So now it just comes down to they've set themselves up to beat earnings like crazy moving forward because all the provisions are in place. So um, that was the key theme of CNBC London. And I want to thank Sophie Rose for inviting me on the show. Um, we also covered uh, the Bank of America Global Fund Manager Survey that talked about the most crowded trade being tech and the contrarian trade being to sell tech and buy banks and oil uh, that managers, only 14% of managers believed in a V-shaped recovery at this point, which gave us plenty of uh, latitude to climb the wall of worry. There's still a lot of pessimism baked in. And the, the two biggest risks being uh, a second wave of coronavirus and uh, a blue wave in the November election, meaning Senate, House, and the president and the executive branch uh, uh, went Democratic. Those are the two big, biggest risks identified by managers running $500 billion in the survey, 200 some odd managers. So enjoyed being on CNBC Europe. Thanks again to Sophie Rose. So definitely watch those on your own because there's a lot of information that went into those. Um, the next thing I want to do before we go to our article of the week, there was a really good article I came across <coughs> that I spent some time on today. But Bank of America put out this article that lists seven reasons why it, uh, value may be finally poised for a big comeback. And we've been talking about this for a number of weeks on the podcast video cast, but I really like the article because they put out some statistics uh, that were spectacular. The bank noted that from 1926 till now, value investing has handily outperformed growth investing, notching a 1.3 million, 1 million percent gain versus growth gain over the same period of 626,000. So value has more than double the performance of growth over the last basically 100 years, even though it's underperformed since 2007. And a lot of that has to do with rates. Um, but they, and growth has outperformed value by about eight percentage points since 2007. But over time, you know, 1.3 million percent versus 626,000 percent is a big difference. Now, the people that are growth will say, well, the world has changed. Um, you know, everything is tech and healthcare, and that's never going to change. Uh, but I, I think that's really taking a short view in the sense, you know, the same story was the case in the late 90s. And then from 2000 till 2007, value and cyclicals crushed growth uh, and commodities and emerging markets, etc. So uh, it has to do with the dollar, has to do with rates, has to do with changes in the cycle, has to do with demographics. 
there's a lot more to it. There's always been capital intensive businesses and non-capital intensive businesses, and they, they cycle in and out and they revert to the mean, no matter how good the non-capital intensive businesses become. Uh, it's a question of when does it pay more to invest in labor versus capital and the cost of capital and the variables that go into that um, um, equation and the expected growth. So um, as Carl Icahn once said on CNBC, he said, you can't tweet your way to prosperity. So uh, at some point, someone's got to pull the uh, energy out of the ground and deliver it and uh, do all that stuff and grow the food and everything else. So here were the seven reasons, and I'm going to go through this because I just thought it was a, a really cohesive argument and it hit on a couple of things that I haven't emphasized in the last few weeks. So since 1929, every time the U.S. went through a recession, value stocks outperformed the S&P 500 for at least three months around the absolute low of the economic pullback, according to Bank of America. Additionally, the outperformance by value trend tends to be wide during the first three months of outperformance, leading on average by 12 percentage points. So we're right in that sticky point of when this, this should shift into high gear and start to work coming out of recessions. That I've emphasized quite a lot on media spots and on these podcasts. The second point they made was cycle, uh, style cycles are driven by profits, not rates. When growth is scarce, investors will pay up for growth. As growth broadens out, investors become more price sensitive and seek out the cheapest growth they can find. Um, the bank also argued that interest rates have very little impact on style ro rotations, according to the note. Um, that I would take a little issue with, but I think the point that they said, well, it's a chicken egg thing. It's like, why do rates go lower and lower and lower? You know, when growth is high in the economy, the demand for capital picks up and that, you know, when the demand, when... <laughs> When the demand goes up, the price goes up, which means the rates go up. The, the, the product price, which is money, goes up because there's a huge demand when there's growth and there's, a, there's an ability to get a return on capital so people demand more, on it, more of it. So that's a chicken and egg argument, but I, I do like the point that they make when uh, growth broadens out, people want to pay less because there's more available. And um, that, that, again, is a supply-demand argument, and that's a nice way of looking at it. He said value is undervalued. Number four, value stocks traded a near record discount relative to momentum stocks. Two standard deviations cheap, Bank of America said. Value has only been this cheap since has only been this cheap since 2003 and 2008, after which value outperformed momentum by 22 percentage points and 69 percentage points, respectively, over the uh, subsequent 12 months. So again, which we've been saying over and over for the last four weeks, coming out of recessions, cyclicals and value tend to outperform, and they're just re-emphasizing this with additional hard data. Point five, <clears throat> abundance of mean reversion alpha. The wide dispersion in valuation between growth and value stocks usually precedes value cycles. So in other words, this, this, this huge spread we have, that's when value starts to outperform, when valuation dispersion has been this high or higher, value stocks have outperformed growth 95% of the time over the subsequent 12 months, Bank of America highlighted. Uh, number six, anti I feel like I'm David Letterman, the top, top 10 list, uh, for those of you who've been around a little longer. Uh, okay, so number six, anti-monopolistic risks to growth stocks. This is interesting. 
U.S. oligopoly power has risen since 1998, while the number of firms has dropped considerably. The implications for oligopolies, which tend to be growth stocks, not value stocks, are more regulation and higher taxes, lower valuations due to regulatory risk and a drop in profit growth, and in some cases, an eventual breakup of some companies, according to the bank. Yeah, I think um, things like Mark Zuckerberg broad, uh, Mark Zuckerberg interviewing Dr. Fauci and criticizing the administration's um, response to coronavirus is probably not going to help their regulatory issues. I think, uh, you know, you've got Facebook, you've got Google, you've got Amazon. So, you know, this has been a trend. This is not new. Uh, it's been moving in this direction for the last 12 months. You see, obviously, Europe has taken action on it. And that's an interesting perspective that I haven't given a lot of weight to with regard to the value to growth rotation or growth to value rotation. I think it's a point well taken. And number seven, Japanification favors value. I don't think we're going to be Japanified, but it says because uh, Japan had a population growth problem, which we don't have. Uh, they had a demographic, so they were aging and they weren't letting people in. It's kind of more of a xenophobic type of, you know, just homogeneous environment. It's not big immigration uh, friendly, etc. So we don't have that. But even in the case that you would, because a lot of people make that argument because of low rates and pushing on a string, yada, yada, value stocks are poised to outperform. While Bank of America doesn't think that'll happen, it did observe that during Japan's lost decade in the 90s, value was the best performing sector among the standard quantitative strategies. So this is a real compelling argument. And then you had legendary bond trader Bill Gross come out talking value stocks this week. Um, and his point was he looks at everything, you know, to a guy with a hammer, everything's a nail. He's a bond guy. So he looks at everything in relation to rates. He says for value stocks, this discounting effect. OK, so when real rates decline like they have over the last few years, the discounting of current dividends skyrockets the price, he said. But for value stocks. This, this discounting effect is much less pronounced because the growth of their dividends was highly dependent on the performance of the economy and would thus offset the benefits of the lower inflation-adjusted yield. It's not clear if growth stocks can continue to depend on the persistent decline in real yield, said Gross, who suggested that the rally in Treasury inflation-protected securities had seen their best days. He noted the 10-year real yield stood at a record negative 80 basis points, tying with inflation-adjusted rates in Europe and Japan. For that reason, value stocks versus growth stocks should be an investor's preference in the near-term future, he said. So, you know, cyclicals, banks, industrial, uh, financials, industrials, materials, uh, et cetera. And you're, you're seeing that, across, you know, home builders, home building sectors flying. We'll go through some of that data. So, uh, so just a unique thing. And then you got Warren Buffett, who's back in action. He did his $10 billion deal. You know, it's funny on Liz, Liz Clayman's show, I also mentioned we, we lost time, but the last two big deals Warren Buffett did were both cyclicals. He did $10 billion uh, uh, natural gas uh, distribution and also the terminal, the Cove Point terminal, which is huge for LNG exports, which is going to be a huge part of the uh, natural gas growth going forward and a big part of the Marcellus story. Um, and then prior to that was the Oxy deal, which in the short term he's getting hurt, but in the, in the long term he's going to do exceptionally well. So his last two $20 billion have been in cyclicals. Obviously he did um, Apple, which has helped him in the short term, but the cyclicals is kind of where, where his 
thinking is, and it's reported that he may have just bought $5 billion of stock back in recent weeks of his own shares, which is basically trades with financials and they've been trading at a discount to book or discount to intrinsic value like a lot of the banks. And he bought back, uh, it appears between 4.9 billion and 5.9 billion. We won't know until the reports, but someone reverse engineered the float uh, or shares outstanding and um, they came to that conclusion. So he's buying value and that looks like cyclicals and his own stock, which is financials. Big holder of banks. Now on to the article of the week, the Eagles long run stock market and sentiment results. So in this, uh, the reason we chose this song, the long run from the Eagles to embody the sentiment of the stock market this week, the lyrics are, you can go the distance, we'll find out in the long run, we can handle some resistance. So I put the chart of the S&P 500 and we're basically knocking up against the levels in the S&P that will make the S&P 500 positive on the year. So we knocked up on it when we had that huge cyclicals run in May to early June, and then we retraced, and now we're knocking up on it again, and we're, we're just, you know, keep knocking on the door waiting for it to open. And the interesting thing about this short-term resistance that we can handle, as Glenn Frey, the singer, so eloquently sang, we can handle some resistance, is that once we get through this, there's a big gap from early February um, that effectively takes us back up to about 33.25 or so that needs to be filled. So if we can get through this without retracing this consolidation box we've had for, for uh, a month and a half, two months, uh, we could shoot right through that gap, potentially to new all-time highs, but certainly probably fill that gap and then chop around for a little while into the fall before um, likely making new highs uh, later in the year or early next year. But um, so that was that. We went through the shows and then we went through Wells Fargo. So the uh, title of this section was Sell the Rumor by the News. And you could see how the thesis has been playing out. So if, a couple weeks ago when they announced they were going to cut the dividend, we put out a long argument on how the last time they cut the dividend was 85% on March 6th of 2009. In the subsequent uh, two-plus months, the stock rallied over 250% after the bad news was out. It basically traded from a huge discount to book all the way back up to book. Right now, it's trading at about, uh, it was trading down to a 38% discount of book. It's come up a little bit. But you can see from this chart that, you know, the bad news came on the 14th in earnings. It uh, plummeted down to 30, uh, I'm sorry, 23.75. Uh, by the way, the book value per share is about $40 right now. So, um, dropped down to 23.5. After the bad news, it rallied all the way up to $25.4, $25.40, and I think it closed today around $25. So it's well up from the $23.75. The bad news is out. The sellers are gone, flushed out. There are not, no real sellers left. There's no more bad news. They've basically probably taken twice the provisions they're going to need over the next 12 months, uh, and that'll come back to them as, you know, we could effectively be, uh, you know, and I said on a number of the shows, V equals vaccine. We're going to talk about that toward the end of this podcast, but some major things coming up in the next uh, trading day we'll, we'll talk about. So um, 
I said, you know, it may not be a straight line up, but I anticipate this movie plays out well over time as it has many times before. I covered this also on CNBC Europe. Um, you know, the whole Wells Fargo scenario, the bad news was out. The, the lady, you know, looked at me like I had three heads. But, you know, I, I've had that before. And then two, three months later, I come back on and they're like, wow. So just hang tight on this one. Uh, and uh, And you'll see how that works out over the next few months. Now, uh, oh, and then I kind of made a joke in case you haven't turned on a TV in the past few weeks and especially days, this is not a popular point of view. I mean, you know, pick your station, man. But like the sentiment on banks this week, it was like, you know, I, I, I can't even think of a bad enough analogy, but it was like, uh, this is the last thing anyone wanted to own. So, uh, sure enough in the last couple of days, they've, they've had a mini rally and then we'll see if we get follow through over the next few months. Um, but that's that. Here's the uh, note that I put out two weeks ago when they announced that they were going to cut the dividend. And I laid out what had happened on um, March 6th when they cut 85%. They cut 80% this time. They went down from 51 cents to 10 cents. So that st yield is still about double the 10-year yield to hold the stock, even with the huge dividend cut. And that's going to save them about uh, $6.7 billion a year. That's going to uh, accrete directly to common equity, to the shareholders. So it doesn't matter. They don't pay out. You don't lose it. It's going to be retained, and they'll pay out whenever they pay it out. That's number one. Number two. It was rumored that they're going to cut 10,000 jobs, which will save enough, which uh, of 250,000, you know, five-ish percent of the workforce, and that'll save about 10 billion dollars on top of it. So they're going to save 16.7 billion dollars. Plus, they've already taken 100 percent of the re revisions they have. Plus, their deposit base has probably increased about 25 percent, and that capital costs them zero. They don't have to pay anything anymore. Two, a year ago, they were competing with CDs. Now, now there is no competition, so they've got all this free funding. Uh, even if they put it in longer-dated treasuries, the Fed's been talking about uh, yield curve control on the short end, not on the long end. So up to the five-year, the short end they already have three-year, five-year, pinning that down. Uh, and letting the 10-year and 30-year do what it'll do what they'll do, which could imply um, a really steep yield curve on a huge amount of free cash or free float, as I like to think of it, uh, and they could just mint money to the bottom line. So a lot of good things lining up, and all the bad news is out. So um, love this story. And you know, you look at the book value over time. You know, in 2004, at the beginning of that recession, it was. $10, it grew to $20 by uh, the 2008-2009 crisis. And then to this crisis, it doubled again from $20 to $40. Uh, and, you know, over the next five, 10 years, it's probably going to grow to $80. But, you know, they trade in a range from a discount of book, which they're trading at now in the case of Wells Fargo is 35% discount or so, to a premium where it traded uh, up here in 2017, uh, to, yeah, late 2017, early 2018, it traded at a 75% premium to book. Uh, so, you know, you have, um, you know, if you, if you can look out five, seven years, you've got basically, book will probably double again to $80 and the euphoria before the end of the cycle could take it up to uh you know $150 stock at that point 
But for now, we're just looking for a reversion to book in a reasonable amount of time, the next six to 12 months. And that's very hard to see right now. But, you know, the other thing is this. If the government really wants to have a strong, sustainable recovery, uh, the number one thing they need to do is take the artificial regulatory asset cap off of Wells Fargo, which is complete nonsense, because it's the biggest lender in the country. If you want the country to recover, you need credit growth. And if you cap your biggest lender, you're shooting yourselves in the foot. And I don't know if people have been thinking about it in that way. But if you look at every single recovery, it's the correlation with credit growth is very, very clear. And if you've capped your number one lender's ability to lend when they're the biggest lenders to small businesses, to Main Street, to individuals, etc., cetera, uh, you just handicap the ability of the economy to recover, which means the government has to pay out more money versus letting the private sector heal itself. So get rid of the cap. Uh, do or don't. I own the position because it's cheap, but uh, this is just common sense. If you want a sustainable recovery, the number one player has to be able to do what they do, which is help the economy by lending to Main Street. Okay, next. Um, okay, we covered that. We covered banks. Ah, the, uh, we talked about the Wells Fargo interview with John Shrewsbury. You can play it here when he talked. His quote was, we believe that we've captured all the lost content in the portfolio. So you can uh, pull that up there. Bank of America put out their monthly global fund manager survey, which is one of the most important data points that I look at. The three key takeaways I had, again, were conviction on the recovery is low with just 14% saying that uh, the recovery will be V-shaped. This is a very good thing, particularly when you're up over 40% off the lows, that there's still a lot of pessimism. It means we've got more wall of worry to climb. Cash levels went up from 4.7% to 4.9%. Again, skepticism. And 74% say that long U.S. tech stocks are the most crowded trade in the survey's history. So um, this is key because the contrarian trade that they're calling for is to short tech stocks and buy banks and energy. Now, in my view, V equals vaccine. So V is code for vaccine. And now that we've got a considerable number of contenders exceeding their timelines on expectations, money is starting to move back into cyclicals like we saw this week. So how is it that cases are going, you know, new cases are going through the roof and yet the market seems relatively calm? Well, hang tight. <laughs> Towards the end of this, we're going to explain why that is. The market has actually figured out that what you hear on TV and what's happening on the ground, when you parse the data correctly, are actually two different stories. And that's why the market is where it is. So um, we'll get to that. But um, the other thing that we pointed out was there is no alternative. This week, we covered a couple weeks ago, but it was basically when you had this percentage of the S&P companies paying dividends greater than the 10-year yield, and it's up to now 80% of the S&P stocks have dividends greater than the 10% uh, yield. The last time this happened was the 2016 crash, the oil crash, and you had a huge rally until 2000 and early 2019 after that. 
uh, this happened after the euro crisis in 2011, the debt crisis, and you had a monster rally after the 2011 crash. And it also happened in late 2008, early 2009. And you know what happened after that. So we've just had it even more pronounced, which means the recovery can be the exact same thing. This also highly correlates with um, periods in which you've have, had a crash. Volatility has ripped high and it's on its way down. You could actually also look at I should have pulled it up, but this VIX index chart where they they uh, correlate it to the bottoms of the market when you have these spikes and then they start to come down and you see the rallies afterward, which is where we are right now. We're coming down off a really pronounced VIX. This is also highly correlated to the average true range. So um, if you take a long dated S&P chart and you put the average true range, so Basically, when when you have a huge move in the market, the average true range shoots up like the VIX. Just think about what happened to the VIX. And as the average true range narrows, you get a longer term rally. It's the exact same thing with the VIX. And, and the volatility is a function of those wide gap in prices, et cetera. So, so the correlation is uncanny. But those are uh, indicators of bottoms, not tops. And that's that. As for this week, a uh, couple other takeaways from the um, global fund manager survey uh, again you can see here overweight tech underweight energy and banks that that will revert to the mean um, the positioning there was a nice move into the eurozone on the over the last month eurozone equities as a result of the 750 billion dollar package a decent starting move into materials uh, but uh, value is and ba and banks are still unloved and if those seven points and my thesis that that i've laid out in the last few weeks is correct that cyclicals and value will outperform in the early stages of the recovery then over the next 12 to 18 months this is going to snap back very very quickly you also saw uh the largest overweight in commodities since 2011 the last time that happened, that was, again, after the 2011 20% correction and, and slight recession. And then uh, also 2009 coming out of the recession is when you also had that underweight shoot to overweight. And then prior to that was uh, likely 2003. We don't have data back that far. Um, and then the two biggest fears are the uh, second wave of COVID by 52% of respondents and the blue wave. Um so that is the election betting odds don't look good but number one it's early number two uh it's unlikely that it'll be a complete sweep regardless of which way the presidency goes and what we want is gridlock whether you have a republican president or a democratic president just have make sure one of the houses uh either the house or the senate is the other party and that's historically bullish on a statistical basis um, and that's what we're talking about is markets. Short term, this was nice to see. The um, fear is thawing in the AAII sentiment results. Um, for those of you on the podcast, by the way, um, if we get cut off in the next nine minutes, if we go over, go to hedgefundtips.com and you can just fast forward the video cast. It's a YouTube video all the way to the end. Uh, and you'll catch the last, you know, 10 minutes or so, but we're going to cover some things you'll want to hear at the end. So, so definitely check that out. Uh, AAII sentiment results uh, went up from uh, 27 to 30 percent. 
the good news is the fear is thawing uh, as well as it's nowhere near an extreme. So when it gets above 40%, that's when we'd start to want to get a little cautious because and maybe start to take some profits because um, there's a lot of beginning stages of euphoria. We're not there. The bearishness actually went up at the same time to 45% from 42%. So again, there's a wall of worry to climb. Just to look at um, times, you really don't start to think about tops until you know mid to high 40s. And sometimes even when that happens, it, it, it persists. But um, we're, we're nowhere near there in, in the uh, just over 30 here. Uh, fear and greed, same story, although it did shoot up from 63 to... Uh, from 53 to 63 this week, we would really need to see a number between 80 to 100 before we started to look at what is there that we potentially want to shave. And the active investment managers had to chase back up to 85% uh, after being underweight last week before we moved up again. So the message was, we're, you know, hasn't really changed. We're very constructive. We use any pullbacks to buy laggard and cyclical names that will outperform coming out of the recession. Uh, in the interim, we hold everything we have and we'll shave only in the event that we do hit levels of euphoria that we've not seen since February. We're not close to that yet. And then until next time, you can go the distance. We'll find out in the long run the lyrics from um, the Eagles. Okay, moving forward. Um, okay, so... What we're seeing here is um, the value versus growth, the tech versus cyclicals. I came up with a Ben Graham quote this week uh, that was posted as one of the quotes of the day. And he said, the intelligent investor is the realist who sells to the optimist and buys from the pessimist. So the contrarian trade that Bank of America is talking about to sell tech and buy cyclicals, banks and energy uh, would be in line with what Benjamin Graham saying. I said that this had to be nuanced in, in my article. I don't think it's going to be a zero-sum game either or just because of the different weights of the sectors that are, are, are skewed now. So what I, what I am calling for is, in the early stages of the recovery, an outperformance but that doesn't have to be fully at the expense of tech. Some, some tech stocks will crack and crash. You know, some of these 100 and 200 times earnings, you know, you'll see some blood in the streets. But I think on balance, on a sector basis, I just think that cyclicals will outperform percentage-wise. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have some 2,000 crash where Amazon goes down 90%. I, I don't see anything like that. Um, I, it's just an it's an out relative performance play versus an either or. And, you know, for some people are saying, you know, you have to have both. Whereas before they were saying just tech, just growth. Now they're diversifying again, like, like they said in that uh, article, as the growth broadens out, people want to pay, will want to pay less and less for the growth once they have more options. And that'll just mean that the ones that were expensive growth will come down a bit to compete with the ones that are, getting growth in the growth part of the cycle coming off of a low growth bar and um and it will it'll kind of rotate in that uh orderly way generally order orderly way so that was a good quote now let's talk covid for a second because you know everything that i hear on four tv sets in the background is like really bad news um i would say a couple things number one is a number of those states, 
California, Arizona, Texas, Florida, Georgia, etc. They had come off the boil early in the week. They were at lower new cases in those days than they had been previously. I think some of them still retained that downtrend. One or two of them may have spiked up. That's immaterial. What I think is very interesting is, you know, President Trump actually was saying something and no one really gives him any credit or listens to him when he says it, but, or, you know, maybe some do, but it's not publicized. And he said, if we did less tests, we'd have less cases. Okay, well, that, that sounds obvious, but it's such a direct correlation. Um, you know, and someone said, when, when I discussed it with them, they said, well, the cases are going up faster than the um, testing, and that's false. So I actually went through the numbers today, and it's not the case. So if you look at, um, we're looking at new tests versus new cases. So I did a little bit of math. I mean, you can see the picture here, but basically the last day that we have data for is July 16th, which was yesterday. You had 830,000 tests, 830,918, and you got 80,000 403 cases. It's 9.6% of the tests um, became cases. Now, that's not to say that 100% of them, you don't get tests in the same day. Some places you do get test results the same day, but most places it takes a week. So there is a lag effect. So then I went back. So I just said, okay, let's just do apples apple. Let's do July 16th, June 16th, May 16th, April 16th, March 16th. Not to cherry pick like, oh, May 12th was better than May 16th to make my argument. So we just took the 16th of every month. You know, June 16th, you had 463 case, uh, 463 tests. So your tests have gone up almost 100% in the last month. Um, in May, May 16th, you had 362,000 cases. April 16th, uh, tests were 163,000. So from April to May, Cases, uh, tests doubled. Uh, and then again, from June to July, tests doubled. And March 16th, tests were only 17,000. So uh, basically, if you take the mean, give or take, the tests, new tests to new cases, it's about 10%, give or take. So that ratio has stayed more or less the same. What's gone down dramatically has been the deaths. So even though the raw number of tests, i.e. cases, so, so let's just say, for argument's sake, round numbers, 10% of the people tested are new cases. That's the bad news. The good news is the deaths have gone despite the fact that the testing has gone up um, 40-fold since March 16th, 40-fold, the deaths have halved from 2,000. We had a spike up, so I'm giving the spike. From 2,000 a day in the end of April to 1,000 a day right now, despite the fact that the cases, because of testing, have gone up 40-fold. So, so the good news is we're getting better treating. 
the point that I want to get to here is that many more people than we know may have this. So assuming a 10% uh, hit rate, so 10% of the people who get tested, let's say, wind up being new cases, we may have a, case, a situation where of 330 million people, the vast majority have not been tested. I think there, uh, I think there have been oh, 43 million tests to get 35 million cases, okay? So that's less than 10%. So let's assume 100% of, you extrapolate that out, 100% of the population actually got tests 